If you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7. As Ryan mentioned, because it is the fifth Sunday, the elders have made the decision that we are going to have a special service devoted to and centered around the Lord's Supper each fifth Sunday during this time. And so we, as is our custom in doing that, have rearranged the service to focus our attention on the Lord's Supper, and I'm up here out of time. Uh, this is not the right time for me to be up here. Not out of time as if I'm not going to preach for a long time, because I'm certainly going to do that. Out of time as in out of order, and we will have the Lord's Supper uh, at the conclusion of what my remarks here in just a moment. But I want to say uh, to those who are visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we want you to know that things are a little different for us, but it is because we have a, a serious focus on the things of God and particularly on the sacrifice Jesus made for us. We do that each Sunday morning, uh, but from time to time, the elders deemed it to be appropriate for us to focus all of our attention on that sacrifice and on our observation of it. Revelation 7 and verse 9 is where I want to read. Revelation 7 and verse 9. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So in an interlude between judgment scenes in the book of Revelation, John sees a multitude worshiping. They're wearing white robes. They're holding palm branches. And one of the elders speaks to John and says, Who are these people? Which is funny because John doesn't know. John says, well, you know, I don't know. And so he explains to them, this is who these people are. Verse 14, he says specifically, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are washed in the blood. That is a disgusting image, to be washed in blood. And what is truly amazing about the image is he says, they have made their robes white by washing them in blood. Now, I don't know if you've thought about that image. I've spent most of my life singing the song, Are You Washed in the Blood? Without ever thinking about both how disgusting and how odd a picture that is. How something could be washed in blood and then that makes it white. That's the opposite of what happens when you wash things in blood. They don't become white. So I want to take a few minutes and think about that picture of being washed in the blood. I need to say a little bit about my picture here. Just get this out of the way so that you're not staring at the headless guy for the whole sermon. First of all, I thought, well, if we're going to talk about being washed in the blood, I should probably have a picture of blood. But I didn't think everybody wanted to look at a picture of blood for 30 minutes or so. 
maybe 45 or 50. I don't know how long I'll go. And then I, I got this picture. Okay, so we'll talk about the clothes being washed white. And then Stephen emailed me and said, did you intend for the guy to be headless? And I realized, oh, he is headless. That's probably not good. So I'm going for the washed clothes. Okay, that's so when you see that picture, that's what you should think of. All right, we done with all that? Let's talk about being washed in the blood. So the picture of blood is the picture of death. The lamb's blood was shed in both sacrifices in the Old Testament and in the picture of Jesus. The, the blood does not just represent that something got cut and it bled out, but that that blood meant that the life was gone. The life was offered for others. And that is, that is a picture that has a long history in the nation of Israel, a picture of all of the different sacrifices that would have been offered. And if you had a Jewish mentality and a Jewish history, when you read these words, you would immediately think of the rivers of blood that would flow when the sacrifices were offered and the reason that the, the blood would flow when the sacrifices were offered is because that represented something. And God says this in, Re in Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The reason there is blood is because something has died. And it is through that death that atonement is made. That is the picture in the Old Testament and the picture of Jesus. God accepts the sacrifice and takes away the sin of the one who offers the sacrifice because the life is in the blood and the blood makes atonement by the life. So when we say that the lamb has been washed in the blood or we are washed in the blood of the lamb, what we are saying is the lamb has died and now we are blessed. Now we are made holy and different because something has died. So I want us to think about what that means. Why is it that Jesus died and what benefits does that give to us? As we think about that, as we prepare to commemorate the death of Jesus... How should we think about that and the blessing it means to you and me? First, Jesus died so that I could be cleansed. Look in verse 13 with me. In verse 13 it says, Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So John sees this vivid image of all of these people, a multitude in white robes. Just think about all the white how when you have a multitude of people and they're all dressed. A multitude of people and they're all dressed in the same way and there is just a sea of white. What does that mean? And he says, these are those who have had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. So they're white because they are clean. And the picture here is of people who were once dirty being made clean through this amazing process of being washed in the blood. The death of Jesus makes clean. And that takes us back to several Old Testament passages. This is Isaiah 1.18. Come now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What an amazing picture. It's so bright red. In fact, it's blood colored and I'll make it white again. I will take your sins away. And so sin is sometimes pictured as something becoming incredibly dirty and then washed clean, made new. And especially that picture of going from something so deeply red to something so brilliantly white, snow and wool. The difference is in the picture in Revelation, it gets to be that white by bathing it in blood. Jesus died to make us clean the way God talked about back then. Or in 1 John 1 and verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 
We sometimes just read right past that. The blood makes clean. The life makes us what we were not before. Of course, the implication there is that we were dirty before and we have to be made clean. We were corrupt. We were sinful and something died. Something died to make us clean again. And that's what happens with Jesus' death. I want you to go with me to Hebrews 9. Let's, let's leave our marker here. We'll come back to Revelation 7 in just a moment. But Hebrews chapter 9 is where I want to go. Because in Hebrews 9, there is the vivid picture of what it means for blood to cleanse or make clean. So all of these pictures that we've been studying center around the idea of the atonement and the sacrificial blood. But in Hebrews, I think you see more clearly just exactly how that would have worked. Hebrews 9 and verse 11 Hebrews 9 and verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the picture is that in the Old Testament, in that system of sacrifices, the, the animal would die and the blood would be sprinkled as representing this life has been given in place of all of this. And so that blood begins to cleanse as it sprinkles. And he emphasizes everything is sprinkled with blood. Look down in verse 19, Hebrews 9 and verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's a great summary, by the way. He just says, you know, he starts listing the things that they sprinkle with blood, and he says, you know what? Just about everything. You just put blood on everything and it made it clean. And I really want to make that connection. The idea of cleansing that comes through the death of another. That's what Jesus' sacrifice does for us. The only difference is that John doesn't see these people in Revelation who have merely had their clothes sprinkled with blood. They are washed in blood. And so that cleansing is even more powerful. So think about the image of cleansing. It means that we were dirty before and something had to change. It means that there was an act of grace by God that was necessary before we could be what we wanted to be, to be clean again before God. But I also want to say this, cleansing is a miracle. Putting something in blood and making it white is miraculous. It does not happen naturally. It does not happen on its own. It is something God must do. God is the one who turns scarlet white and turns crimson, crimson to wool. And I want you to think about, when you think about that picture of all of the miracles God does throughout Scripture that are the opposite of what should happen, like when the sundial goes backwards or like when the fleece, Gideon leaves, is dry while the ground is wet, or when Elijah calls down fire from heaven and the flames lick up the water. 
God reversing the course of what is natural. And for you and me now, he takes that miracle power and applies it to our souls where before we were only going to grow more and more corrupt, not more and more pure. And he says, no, let's reverse that process and use death to bring life and use an innocent person to purge the guilty. I could be cleansed, but only cleansed because Jesus died for me. And such were some of you But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11. So there are echoes in that statement of our past. Such were some of you, having listed this long list of sins. But, but there has been a change. We have made ourselves something. But Jesus died to make us something else. That's the point. Now it's natural, when you think about cleansing, you think about washing, you know what's natural is to think of baptism. Where we are washed in water. Sometimes that is called the washing of regeneration in Titus 3. Or the washing of water by the word in Ephesians 5. There is a connection there between washing in water and being reborn. But there is a crucial difference. Water does not cleanse us. Water does not save us. Water is an emphasis on. And baptism in water is an emphasis on the act of obedience to Jesus' will. Being washed in the blood has an emphasis on the fact that we have a sacrifice made for us. Jesus' death is what cleanses us, not any physical water. Let's go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. The second thing I want us to see here is that Jesus died so that I could approach God. Revelation 7 and verse 15. Having said, these are the ones who have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So because they have been washed in the blood, now they can approach and be in the presence of God. They serve him. My version says that is a word that means to worship. They worship God. They are in his temple. They are praising and singing to him. Now I want you to remember, I I think we have lost this in our time. Because there are very few people with whom this kind of perspective is accurate. It is a serious thing to approach God. Biblically, this is where Moses is told, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. When God is going to appear to the people, they have to consecrate themselves and prepare for the presence of God. When the priests go into the temple, they have to prepare themselves and wash themselves and clothe themselves in their appropriate way. To approach God, is a serious thing. When Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God, unprepared, he says, Woe, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me, I am undone. I live among a people of unclean lips. I shouldn't be here. Peter has the same reaction when he sees Jesus after the, uh, the catch of fish. Depart from me. Even John, when you see John in the book of Revelation, and he even comes on an angel. And this is almost universal. When people encounter angels in Scripture, they fall down. They are terrified. They have to be told, don't be afraid. It's okay. I'm not going to kill you, at least not right now. To be in the presence of God is a serious thing. And that is something I believe we've lost in our culture because we don't take anything that seriously in our culture today. But the closest thing I can picture is to think about the idea of approaching the president. No matter who the president is, it's not a political idea. The the idea that there is a person who is so powerful 
and so important, has things going on. They can't just see everybody. Not everybody can just approach them. It's not an open-door policy at the White House. There is a seriousness to that, and there has to be a connection. There has to be a reason why you would be allowed to see someone that important. Approaching them is a serious thing. And then, consider the idea of a being who will have nothing to do with sin. To be sinful in the presence of this being will immediately be detected and you will be ushered out. You are not welcome when sin is a part of you. Now, the idea of approaching God should give us a sense of awe and fear and to approach God on our own should make us feel utterly unworthy. We are not worthy, and we should not be here approaching God. What this text is saying is that these people are allowed in the presence of God. They worship God. They are there with God only because they have had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, only because Jesus died and enabled that to happen. So there is a passage that emphasizes this. This is Hebrews chapter 10. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's a, a picture of the inner sanctum in the temple where God lives, the holy places we enter by the blood of Jesus because Jesus died for us, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, the flesh he offered for us. And since we are a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see the preparation? Having your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, you are ready to go in. And your body is washed with pure water. You are ready to go in because you have made yourself ready and you now enter because Jesus died for you. There is a seriousness to that, but there is also a blessing to that. So when you and I do something that in our time is, is as casual as saying, Dear Heavenly Father, we're saying, I'm going to go to worship God. Or opening the Bible. What we are doing is something that we have no right to do whatsoever on our own merits. To come before God and know He hears us. To know He wants and accepts our worship. These are things that we are unworthy of. It is only through the death of his son, to cleanse us and make us what we are not on our own, that we can approach God. Let's go back to Revelation 7. Well, we're still here. Revelation 7 and verse 16. Revelation 7 and verse 16. It says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the third thing I want us to see is Jesus died so that I could live with God eternally. For these people, things have changed. Now, he says they've come out of the great tribulation. They have been suffering. And yet now, in the presence of God, their suffering is ended. Now, in the presence of God, there is comfort. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more tears. God truly gives them the comfort they've been waiting their whole lives to have. They can live with God and have the blessing of the presence of God eternally. But what's the basis of that? How do they get there? It is only because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Turn back a page to Revelation 5. Revelation 5 and verse 9. <clears throat> Revelation 5 and verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God for every, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. By your blood, he says in verse 9, they, they sing to the Lamb, by your blood you have ransomed a people for God. Jesus' death makes a people who can approach God, a people who can live for God, and then ultimately a people who can live with God. They are a kingdom and priests to God. They will reign with God. They are forever with God. And of course, having studied Revelation not that long ago, this takes us to that last scene in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, the new Jerusalem where it is said, there will be no more pain, and there will be no more tears, and there will be no more sin, and there will be no more death, and there will be no more mourning. Because God will be with his people and he will comfort his people. And he says, I will be with them and I will be their God. Can I ask you a question? Have you thought about what it will be like to live with God forever? To have all your needs met? To have a body that is equipped for eternity? instead of one that's full of the aches and pains and aging and death that this body is subject to? I wonder if we'll have all our questions answered. I wonder if we'll even care. I wonder if we'll have Q&A sessions that I don't have to teach. <laughs> I wonder if God's even going to humor us and indulge us in that. I wonder if we'll gain a perspective on life that we don't have right now. You know, we live in this state of uncertainty, partial ignorance, frustration. And we, we have hope and we have trust that there are reasons and there, there is meaning that we don't grasp. But I wonder, I wonder if when we're in the presence of God, we'll look at things differently. I wonder what it will be like to talk to Jesus I study those stories and I am in awe of Jesus. I wonder sometimes if I would have responded to Jesus in the best way were I to know him physically. But what will it be like to live with Jesus? What will it be like to live with people that we love and to not ever have to worry about the sorrow that comes from separation? Don't you get tired of that? Sometimes we, we just don't see each other for a long time. Sometimes we don't see each other because someone passes on. Sometimes we just live in distant places. But to say, no, we, we can be together truly forever. To live in the presence of God. That's what you see in this picture. It's only a glimpse. But it's an exciting glimpse of what is to come when we can live with God. The whole picture is this. Real live people in the presence of God for eternity. That's what we're going for. And the blessing is God wants it too. God wants to live with us. And God has made it possible for us to do that by sending his son to die for us. Jesus died so that we could be washed in his blood and come into the presence of God. So here's what I want you to see. Being cleansed is about dealing with the past. Jesus died so that we could be done with the past and forgiven of our past. So that we could have peace and we could have status before God that we did not earn. But approaching God is about the present. That's how we live now. That we approach God 
in a life of worship, in a Father who hears us, in a God who lives in us. But living with God eternally is about the future, a better future where we escape the difficulties and futilities of this life. So what I'm saying is Jesus' death matters past, present, and future. We wash our clothes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. So I encourage you, as we take these emblems, as we remember the body that Jesus offered for us and the blood that he shed for us, think about what it means for your past and your present and your future. I invite the men to come up and serve us the Lord's Supper. He would grab a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. Appreciate so much this opportunity we've had to remember the death of Jesus and appreciate everyone participating in that, being supportive of that. I hope it's been beneficial for you. I wanted to say uh, I'm going to have a, just a short reading here in just a moment, uh, but I, I wanted to say a couple of things that are sort of our... Uh, I don't know, housekeeping things. Um, one is that uh, I want to remind everybody that we are having our adult Bible workshop. This is next Saturday. Now, when I say next Saturday, I don't mean this Saturday. I mean a week from this Saturday, October the 12th. Uh, so if you have not registered for this or made plans to be here for that, I just want to really encourage you to do that. We have had really great uh, participation in that so far. The numbers of people who have registered are really good. We have uh, five men and Sarah. Five men are coming to, to teach these classes, and Sarah's not coming. She's going to be here anyway, but um, to, to teach uh, on this uh, topic of prayer. And I want to invite everyone, those who are visiting with us, we want you to know that we'd love for you to come. Uh, it is a full day on Saturday, October 12th, where we're going to be here at the building studying and focusing on prayer in different ways. And so if you'd like more information about that, one of these looks like this uh, is in the back on the credenza in the back. Uh, but we wanted to mention that uh, before... Uh, before we leave our time here together uh, this morning. The other thing I wanted to say is uh, I just loved uh, the worship service that we had this morning in the assembly period where the young men led us. Uh, they did an outstanding job. And uh, I love, one of the things I love about preaching the gospel and listening to other people, my brothers in Christ, talk about the gospel is that the gospel sounds a little bit different in everybody's mouth. And I love to hear the gospel in Braxton's mouth. And I love the way he, uh, his take on it is, uh, is just encouraging to me. I love these young men and the work that they're doing. You did a great job today, guys. And I just wanted to encourage you in that. Luke chapter 9, Luke 9 and verse 23. It says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. So we spent our morning thinking about the blood of the lamb and the blessings of Jesus' death. We learned some things from that death. We learned, for example, the fact that God doesn't stop things just because they're hard. God allows Jesus to suffer all the way. And Jesus has to be obedient to God's will for him all the way, through pain, through difficulty. And in fact, Jesus teaches us that sometimes the greater blessings lie on the other side of the suffering. Sometimes the greater things we do for others are on the other side of suffering. We have to go through some things. 
That's a challenge for us because as Americans, very often our primary goal, our primary idol is comfort. We want to know that we're comfortable, that we like what we're doing, that everything is the way it should be. And Jesus challenges that when he says, take up your cross daily and come after me. He is saying there will be suffering involved, but at the end of the suffering, blessing. I don't believe that when Jesus says, take up your cross, he means, you know, if there's a rock in your shoe, that's your cross. Or if you have an annoying neighbor, that's your cross. I believe Jesus is teaching us that there will be suffering that is connected to him. And the fact that we're following him is going to lead others to do and say and act toward us in ways that we don't like, that are hard. And he is teaching us, embrace it rather than fight it. So my question for you is, what hardships and challenges do you need to embrace this week? As you try to live the faith, there will be people who stand in your way. There will be situations that vex you. There will be habits in your life that challenge you. And sometimes it will mean that you have to do things that are hard. And I don't want us to leave the example of Jesus suffering for us without learning that lesson. That there is value in suffering for good things. So that we now go out and say, it's not just that Jesus did something for me and now I get to live free and clear. It is instead Jesus suffered for me. And so now what am I willing to endure for him? That's going to look different for each one of us. I think that might be part of the reason he talks about your cross. But the challenge is, will we embrace that suffering? And it might be that you're not a disciple of Jesus, and that is a call for you. Take up your cross and follow after me, where Jesus is saying to you, for the first time you need to leave behind the sins of your past and the way you've been living for yourself, and you need to be a follower, a disciple of me, to learn from me, to have your life transformed by me. And if that's the case, then we want to invite you and encourage you to become a disciple of Jesus and to accept that challenge, to turn away from your sins and have your body washed in water, to have those sins washed away, to be baptized into Christ. If there is a need that you have this morning, this is the time where we invite you to let us know and let us help you. Right now, come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.